Hi, this is Wilson, pastor of Renew Church OC, a church for imperfect people only. Thanks for joining our podcast. Over the pandemic, a lot of our lives have been reoriented. Whether it's our work, school, friendships, or church, we've become comfortable with a new normal because of COVID. Many of us are asking what church is and how important is it really? Can I be a strong Christian without the church? Or can I go to church in PJs and off a screen for the rest of my life? I hope this series helps you move away from cultural norms and beliefs about church and brings us back into God's word and heart for the local church. Enjoy the sermon. All right, welcome back, everyone. I hope you had a good discussion. Again, these phrases um, are so popular and common and has really picked up in how we speak to one another. What it means for uh, something to be my truth, to grow my truth, to find my truth. But I do think that these concepts, especially the concept of my truth, comes out of a larger category or framework of what truth is. Remember to pay attention here, because if you get lost, you're, you're not going to come back in. So there's two major categories for truth. First, there's universal truth. And the idea is that truth is truth universally for everyone. That if something is really true, it applies to everyone and everything around us. It's not just true for me. It's true for you and the person in Africa and China. It's true for the universe. An easy example of that is one plus one equals two, right? So that's not just true for me. That's true for everyone. And if you disagree with that, if you believe it's three, if you don't know math and you're totally unaware that one plus one equals two, it still equals through two. You're just wrong or you're just ignorant of that truth. So that's one concept of universal truth. And it doesn't just apply to math. It applies to ethics, to morality, to religion, to uh, gender, to to sexuality, it applies to every category, this idea of universal truth. If there is a truth, it applies to everyone. And then there's relative truth. And that's kind of a lot of the phrasing of my truth. The idea is that truth is for me. It's relative to me. And your truth is for you. It's relative to you. And the diagram shows that this concept of truth is really underneath us. Universal truth, it governs us, it's above us, it's beyond us, and we are subjected to universal truth. But when people have the idea of relative truth, the idea is that we get to govern truth, that truth is subjected to us. We get to choose truth and change truth depending on our experiences, what we believe, what we believe at the moment. And so when we say these phrases of finding your truth, living your truth, it comes out of a relative truth concept, really birthed out of the postmodern era and philosophy of what truth is. So um, when did universal truth become challenged? There's World War II in 1939 to 45. And so before World War II, a lot of people 
for millennials accepted universal truth. They didn't really have a lot of concepts of relative truth. They believed that truth governed um, everything, everyone, and was above us. And they would disagree on what the universal truth was, right? So different religions had different concepts of universal truth. So So there was a conflict and disagreement on that when darwinism came around a lot some people became atheists but that was still universal truth no god exists uh is a universal truth compared to religious truth but people held on to that concept of universal truth even when there was disagreement but after world war ii postmodernism really started um becoming mainstream there was tenets of it prior Around the 40s, tenets of postmodernism started coming together. Some of it, you know, is the ideas of deconstructionism from uh, Descartes and pulled into all these other uh, different concepts. But it really, so it starts to really form in the middle of World War II in the 40s, and then it takes off afterward. And the reason for that is because they saw world truth as um, a way in which people subjected others, marginalized them, or justified killings and wars. Truth became weaponized, um, you know, throughout all the centuries, but it became so explicit and in front of people's faces that they wanted to combat the ideas of universal truth in order to democratize truth as well as take it away as a means of power and weaponization. An easy example of this is um, Hitler Germany, where Hitler is saying, hey, if you have blonde hair and blue eyes and you're German, you are the supreme race, right? You're superior to all the other races. That's a truth. And the outcome of that truth is that Jews were uh, massacred. There's concentration camps and genocide. So these philosophers said, what if we took away truth so that people didn't have that to hold uh, as a means of power and weaponization? When you look at the truth of communism and the ideology of that, it caused massacres in China and Russia. If you look at the wars between democracy and communism, we see uh, massive deaths around um, Vietnam, Guam, right? That whole coastal region. And so as people are coming out of World War II, these philosophers and artists are saying, maybe if we de-weaponize truth or question whether truth even exists in a universal way, we can avoid these kinds of travesties, which um, has some value to it. So the paintings and arts, uh, philosophies have really shifted during that time. Picasso kind of lived through both periods, right? So if postmodernism really started coming together and taking off in 1950, we see these portraits, his early works in in 1896 and 1897, where Picasso is really drawing um, in a classical Renaissance type of way. And, and it portrays 
uh, universal truth that there's something in front of you, a, a reality in which you're portraying onto a canvas and trying to reflect that reality. And then we have him really be the spearhead of abstract art. And so if you look at uh, this next piece in 1962, and his, his work transitions pretty early, earlier than this, but we see him push into abstract art where he isn't trying to conv- communicate a, a reality or a universal reality. We move from drawing objects and drawing what's in front of us to thinking about art in the way it's consumed. The, the person observing the art is dictating its truth more than the artist or what he's painting. And that's what Picasso often tried to communicate through his pieces. This, the, the truth of this piece is however the patrons of art or the observers of this art is defining it, which is this great um, artistic shift from universal truth to relative truth. So why is relative truth attractive? Well, again, it's trying to de-weaponize truth um, as, as a reaction to government, power structures, you know, um, all of those things that, that pushed World War II to the brink of humanity in many ways. But also there's this in, intrinsic attractiveness to relative truth where we get to define what truth is. We get to find our own purpose. We get to do what we believe is right. I mean, those are all really attractive phrasing, right? We can course our own life. But there are also limitations to relative truth. There are social limitations. So when when I say my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth, the application of that only works if we live on different islands. <laughs> because if we live in community, whether it's a family, city, or civilization, our truth often finds areas of overlap and collision. So an easy example of that is masks, right? So there's people who are for masks, who believe that it's going to be what helps curve the vent- pandemic before vaccines, and are advocates of it. And they get frustrated at people who don't wear masks because they're like, this is the worst group project we've ever had in the U.S., right? I'm doing my part, but all these people are just spraying the virus um, and not participating. But then people who don't want to wear masks feel infringed upon as well. Their truth is that I don't want to wear masks. I get to have rights over my face and what I wear. And now you're saying that I can't go into Costco or Home Depot or Walmart. I can't go buy something without you putting uh, something over my mouth, right? So, so you can't have two opposing views live in conjunction with one another and as you maintain the your truth statement, that your truth actually has conflicting, uh, many conflicting spaces. I mean, every law in place is not a way of abiding to the my truth um, and relative truth concept. So conceptually it works. In society, we hit a lot of limitations. Every law is a limit to the idea of being able to practically live out relative truth in a society. Secondly, there's moral limits. Um, If you believe that anything is evil in and of itself, you have broken the relative truth 
philosophy. You can never say to another person that what you're doing is morally wrong. You can't say it's evil. You can't say anything is wrong all of the time for everyone. You can really only say that it's wrong for me. But that hits ahead when you see some grotesque things happening um, in society and personally child abuse. I, I read the most severe case of child abuse in American history and wanted to vomit. And as I think about it now, I still want to vomit. It is, it is evil and, and it's like this woman was completely demonized. It's what Satan would do to a child. Um, it's unfathomable. But for the person who really wants to sustain this worldview of relative truth, all you can say is that that's only wrong for me. You can't say that it's wrong for the other person. Um, in fact, you should probably let them do what they think is right instead of imposing your view of morality on them. So there's moral limits if you ever want to say that anything is evil or wrong in and of itself. And you know, a, a strong philosopher will just go into the case of child abuse that I have in my head and they'll just explicitly say every single incident that happened and ask you, if that is, is that evil? And once you concede that is evil, um, then you've broken your position on relative truth. All right, the last part is that there can be logical contradictions. So someone who, you know, believes in relative truth will say, oh, all religion is true. It's like, okay, if you parse it out and maybe say religion believes in doing good and you, can, might, you might find some overlap there. But when you take a step back on what a religion is, I'd say it's based on your concept of God. So in the Christian faith, we have a Trinitarian view of God. Um, or we're monotheistic, we believe in one God. But in the Hindu faith, they believe in thousands of gods. And logic dictates that you can't have one, only one, and a thousand in the same universe, right? You have to be one or a thousand or both are wrong. And so there's logical contradictions. Also, the statement, there is no truth, is actually a statement of truth. So if you hold that to be universally true, you're back to universal truths instead of relative truth. So the idea of relative truth is um, has a logical contradiction in and of itself. Also, the playing out of relative truth oftentimes is this desire to never be judged, right? Like, don't judge me. Don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Uh, it's true for me. And I often see violent reactions to that. So like if someone does judge that person or tell them they're wrong, they're like, you judging me is wrong. So they'll push back. But then once they say you judging me is wrong and they're placing a value statement on the act of judging, they've broken relative truth and re-entered into absolute truth where judging is wrong. So what they really should do is probably, if you really want to, live out relative truth in a puristic way, you'll never correct anyone else, even if they're correcting you, because they should be fully entitled to their truth, even when their truth says that, even when their truth is universal truths that believe your truth is false. Like you should be like, that's fine because it's your truth and why would I ever correct someone else on their truth? 
uh, possibly never propagating your own beliefs of relative truth. <laughs> Hopefully you stayed with me there. But let me slow down a little bit and talk about relative truth and universal truth from a theological perspective, um, a Christian perspective. And I, for me, it really boils down to, does God exist? A really simple question, does God exist? And I think how you answer the question of whether God exists will dictate whether you are someone who believes in universal truth or relative truth. And that was a conversation I was having on the airport with the atheist, right? He, she was wearing, a, she was reading this hardcore anti-Christian book written by atheists. And I was like, what are you reading? And then I'm a pastor. And then we just had a really lively conversation after that. Um, and she was espousing relative truth. But for me, instead of pointing out maybe some of those inconsistencies, what dawned on me was that you should be someone who believes in relative truth because you're an atheist, because you don't believe that God exists. And I should believe in absolute truth and universal truth because I believe in God. It doesn't make sense for someone who's an atheist to believe in universal truths, especially when it falls into the realm of ethics or sexuality or uh, purpose. And it, it shouldn't make sense for me who believes in God to be a relativist. And this is why. If you look at the diagram again and you believe in relative uh, truth, okay, if you're, if you're an atheist, what it means is that truth has to be derived by either yourself or the people around you. That we are, as we, as we know it, from an atheist perspective, the most intelligent beings on the face of the planet. And probably the only species that is able to wrestle with morality, right? I, I don't really see other animals asking whether this is good uh, and possibly what self-consciousness and, and purpose looks like. Maybe dogs. I love dogs. So if I am the most powerful being in existence that I know of, I would then derive truth either from me or from other people around me. But, but why would someone else be able to dictate what I believe if we are just people existing? Why would they ever have the authority or power or rights to dictate my truth, to dictate truth from a universal perspective? I mean, we're both human. We're caught in our cultural context, in our time period. We only have zero to 100 years of life to live. We have, a, we have a worm's perspective when it comes to these grand concepts of morality and purpose. And your worm perspective and my worm perspective, why, why would you think that you have the 3,000, 30,000 foot view? Why would you believe anyone else has that? And so it makes no sense to have someone else tell me what truth is. I should be able to dictate truth for myself. You should be able to dictate truth for yourself. If I happen to agree with you or even follow you, that's because of my own volition, not because you have an intrinsic corner and knowledge of truth beyond me. But if I believe in God and a Christian God, 
If I believe that there's a being out there with absolute knowledge, who is eternal, who created everything, who, who wants to communicate those things with me, then I should believe in universal truth because I have a being with universal insight into life, into creation, into my own purpose, right? Like if, like, yeah, okay. I was going to make some examples, but <laughs> next slide. So I, I put this out maybe in a more of academic phrasing. Does God exist? If God does not exist, then truths about morality, ethics, and purpose, etc. are based on beliefs derived from yourself or another person with only relative knowledge. Thus, it is relative truth. But if the Christian God exists and reveals himself, right? Because if he doesn't reveal himself, maybe there is universal truth, but we still would live in a relative truth application because we don't know, we have no communication with this all-powerful God. But if he reveals himself through the Bible, then there must be universal truth because the truths about morality, purpose, and ethics are derived from a being with absolute truth. So if there's a God, if the, if the Christian God exists, absolute truth has to exist. Um, if God doesn't exist, then it's only relative truth that we have. <clears throat> so, and then the second concept I have about a the, in a theological way is not only does God exist, but who is God? In Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan tempt Adam and Eve. Um, when he puts them in front of the tree of good and evil, he says, do you want to be God? Do you want to be like God? And all these phrases is really us trying to be like God. When we live our own truth, find our own truth, when we say that no one should judge me, only I'm judging me, I'll do what I think is right, I'll do what makes me happy, it's us being God. Right? It's us having truth at our feet and dictating our own life. A Christian is saying, the fundamental confession of a Christian is saying, I don't want to be God. I want God to be God. But there are practical ways that Christian can be relativists. First, we can be atheists or deists. Um, and we could be Christian atheists or deists. We could believe that God is far removed. He doesn't really care about us. He kind of set the earth in motion. Or we could have idea, ideas about God that we've kind of created and made in our own image. And that's what I often see when I have conversations with atheists, right? I'll be like, oh, he's, they're like, yeah, I believe in a God, but I don't know which one. Or I'm kind of I'm Christian. I don't read the Bible. And I'll be like, okay, tell me about your God. What do you believe about God? And they have some beliefs about God. Most atheists have beliefs about God. Oh, he's all loving, or he doesn't care about us much. He's a little, um, you know, so on and so forth. And I'll ask them, how do you derive these beliefs? And basically, they are creating a God in their own mind. Some of it's parsed from the Bible or other religions, or maybe what they desire God to be which really means that God is like truth underneath their feet, right? They 
it's God is subjected to what they believe to be true of him. And it usually is very convenient to the way that they want to live their life. A more explicit way is a relative reading of the Bible. When you read the Bible, do you take your own views of God and edit scripture to agree with you? You know, I have um, someone that I was pretty close to. We did ministry together, but this person became really liberal. Um, and we had a conversation about scripture, and she believed that God uh, is all loving, fully loving in the way that she defined loving to be, which excluded judgment and the way that he punished, you know, the Egyptians or other, other nations or even his own people. And I asked this person, like, but in the Bible, we have all these examples. And she's like, yeah, but these authors are actually writing their own concepts about God from pagan views and interpreting these historic events as from their own God. But God wouldn't actually do those things. Do you see what she did there? She just kind of took the Bible and put it under her feet. <laughs> she got to reinterpret what the Bible was. So it became a relative truth to her. In 2 Timothy verse, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desire, they will gather around a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. There's going to be a time, and a lot of our society looks this way, where people only want to hear from pastors who are going to agree with their cultural views, uh, with what's popular, with what they want to hear. Instead of taking scripture and saying, God, what are you saying to us? That scripture and God is above us. That scripture and God is true, whether we're ignorant to it or disagree with it, it is true. And then he gives us that, and now we get to believe something is true as well. Third, an ignorant or secondary approach to God's word. So we can be a relativist um, by not going to God's word first. We'd rather listen to our friends on a topic. We'd rather go to our therapist, which I love therapy. I've been through it. But still, is it our primary way to understand ourselves? Is it our primary way to um, unravel different aspects of our life, to speak truth to us? Because then we have us, maybe we have God's word here, but then whatever you went to before God's word is actually your primary source of truth. It might be friends, God's words, you. It might be therapist, God's word, you. So we become a relativist that way. Other times we're just ignorant towards scripture. We don't read it. We don't value it in our lives. And that's probably a value of what we believe is true and our greatest source of truth. Because if we're not listening to what scripture has to say about something, we're listening to something else that has um, a greater value of truth for us. You know, when I have conversations with many Christians about gender and sex sexuality and um, sex before marriage, you know, a lot of them have very pop culture perspectives of that. And now sit down with them. I'm like, okay, I understand why you believe it, but have you sat down with scripture? What are the passages that come to mind that tackles those 
categories. And often they have, they've never looked into the Bible for those answers. That the Bible really doesn't have authority over, the, to, uh, over them. That they're practical relativists when it comes to many issues in their life. And I would suggest when you're really wrestling with the issue, what does it look like to just take scripture and to go into this mental island where all the voices, everything you've learned is just kind of blocked out. You're trying to remove yourself from your cultural context and say, what is the Bible saying to me? Holy Spirit, would you just speak to me through your word and help me have um, this, the truth that, that you that you want to communicate about every category of life is that what we're doing when we're wrestling with something oftentimes i could see us allowing our or others interpretations of experiences and feelings to dictate truth instead of scripture right our experiences and feelings are always valid they're always true the facts of your experience has happened how you've responded emotionally is valid as well, but we can often conflate our experiences and feelings with our interpretations of our experiences and feelings. How we can feel like we can have an experience and a feeling and then believe that we're always alone. No one understands us. Everyone hates us. We're worthless. Those are actually all interpretations of our feelings and experiences. And are we willing to subjugate and submit all of those things under the Bible and, and use our will to believe Scripture over our interpretation of our experiences and feelings. Are we willing to live under the truths of Scripture? In 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought that to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If we know scripture well, it becomes a filter in which we see our experiences, feel our feelings, and point them to the reality that God's given to us through the Bible. We interpret it with a biblical lens. And we think about, I just, there's so many characters in the Bible who did that. Read Psalms, read Job, read it. They, they did that. Lastly, disobedience is a way in which we are practical relatives. Every time we obey ourselves and disobey God, we're basically saying that we're putting scripture and God under our feet and we're going to go our own way. Every time I sin, I'm a practical relativist, where instead of living under the truth of God, uh, under scripture, I become God, right? Just like the last slide, I decide that I am God, and I, I'm going to do my own thing. Now, when I look at all these categories, I would say that I've applied every single category into my life in negative ways. Um... I've put, turned a blind eye towards scripture. I've allowed my, my feeling, my interpretation of experience to dictate truth. My whole sermon on the Good Samaritan last week was about how I saw God wrongly, right? 
So I am not exempt uh, from all these practical ways of Christians being relativists. Lastly, I do want to point out how postmodernism and even maybe, yeah, postmodernism as a whole and its motivations have challenged and benefited, I would say, the Christian church um, and pointed out some things that we were missing. I don't think that relative truth is true, but postmodernism, if you understand it more broadly, actually has a lot of important critiques um, for the Christian church and has really shaped how I do ministry and pastoring. So I think one uh, example that comes to mind is that our story and experience is an essential part of truth, of the truth we receive from God. That truth doesn't just reside in the word of God, but is supposed to integrate into our life and become true in our experiences. And and that's a way in which God allows us to know his truth is that we read something in scripture and then he actually crafts curriculum throughout the trials and blessings of our life so that that truth becomes who we are. So our story and experience is actually how God allows truth to be a part of us and not just separated from us. Um, in Revelations chapter 12, verse 11, it says, They triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their own lives so much to shrink from death. So the testimony, the story of the saints, alongside of the death of Christ and the gospel is what triumphs over Satan. That our story um, is intrinsic to how the gospel is spread and takes root in our life. Secondly, truth has power and needs to be wielded in the hands of the humble. So this critique that, that truth and power are interlaced is true. And that power can be weaponized is also true. I, I totally agree with that critique from the postmodern um, perspective. And I've seen that being abused at church. The pastor has a mic, knows scripture a little better, and can easily use that to uh, dominate, marginalize, and shame people. Um, uh, there's times where I listen to other pastors and I'm like, wow, he, he's explaining scripture correctly. But man, is he doing it in a condescending way? <laughs> man, does it, do I feel like crap as I'm listening to him preach? You know, like unnecessarily. Like I actually love Jesus, but he, he's telling me I don't. Uh, there's this guy who's in his sermon telling me that I'm not a Christian and I don't love Jesus. I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> like, <laughs> and and the assumption is that he lo- he really loves Jesus and he and only he like does things right. And and I and I think about First Corinthians eight. It says, "But knowledge puffs up, but loves builds up." Why I point to these passages, especially in this section, is because. I don't believe these things because um, postmodernism, I think, pushed me to scriptures that already valued these things. It's not dictated by postmodernism, but it was a helpful uh, pointer in the way that it shaped my uh, thinking. 
So I hope that as you hear my sermons, um, that I can share my weakness and struggle with you, that I can be someone who journeys with you, that I can be a humble hand holding truth um, for you. And I know I don't do that perfect, but that's really why I preach the way I do. That's why I'm usually, that's why I don't yell. (laughs) That's why I don't point my finger or throw Bibles is because I think this is a great critique. Truth has power and needs to be wielded in the hands of the humble. I also think, man, isn't that how the Lord speaks to us? The ultimate handler of truth, the creator of it, speaks to us in whispers, holds us gently in his truth, is is a humble carry of truth in our hearts because he's not trying to dominate our wills. He's trying to woo and pull us in with his love and allowing truth to penetrate us that way, allowing us to choose the truth that is real. And I, I hope that I could be a reflection of the Lord in that. If anyone should be able to scream and pound truth and step on us, it's the Lord. Um, a side tangent, I was watching The Shack on Netflix Uh, It's this pop Christian book, um, and a lot of people have issue with it because God is portrayed as a black woman there, but I think they explained that part well. Um, I understand why we would have issue with it, especially as Mother God is becoming a thing. thing. It was written prior to that. Um, Theology outside of that is like almost perfect, but it's this man who's kind of a nominal Christian. His daughter gets abducted. And, and killed and probably raped. So he's just pissed off at God and his family's falling in shambles. And then the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit invites him back into this cabin where it, all this horrific things happens to his daughter. But the cabin's kind of remade. And they have this weekend with him. And you really feel like you're meeting God in this film, right? And he is so angry, which I get it. Like, I would be pissed. I mean, it's, it's the most horrific thing that can happen to a parent. But the Lord, uh, the Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, how they're portrayed, is just having gentle conversations with him the whole time. And you're just waiting for them as he's like lashing out to flame up and just like overpower him. And they never do. And that was like the most beautiful part of the film. I think it's still on Netflix, The Shack. A great philosophy, theology, and um, a really difficult conversation, which we, we all ask about. All right, last part, and I'm pretty much done with the sermon, so excuse that, that, that uh, tangent. Humility in the limits of revealed knowledge and personal perspective. I think postmodernism has challenged us to really understand that when we're preaching, And when we're reading God's word, we're reading it um, captive to our gender, our ethnicity, our story. We don't have the whole picture. Um, And that there's a lot of knowledge that is not revealed in scripture. A lot. There's a lot of mystery out there. We have what's essential. We have enough to equip us, to give us purpose, to speak about ethics and and eternity and who God is. We have so much in scripture, but there's a lot that isn't in there as well. There's a lot that the, that the Bible does not speak to. 
But Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. He knows everything. He doesn't reveal it to us. There's so much he doesn't tell us about. The secret thing belongs to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of the law. Can I read that again? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, the things in Scripture, the things that He has shared about who He is and who we are and how we should live, how we, the purpose we should have, He shares all of that belong to us and our children forever that we may follow all the words of the law. He's revealed so much to us. And I wonder, I wonder if that's what we've kept close to our hearts and studied and given ourselves to. But we do it in a way of humility. You know, in the political scene, there's a lot that God doesn't speak to when it comes to politics. But man, have Christians staked their whole <laughs> faith and the faith of others on their political positions. And I just think, man, they need to read this verse better. <laughs> and it kind of makes us look bad. <clears throat> Do you want to be God? I, I just kind of want to end our sermon there. Do you want to be God? If you want to be God, being a relative uh, believer of truth, holding on to relative truth totally makes sense. Because you get to be God. And that might be how you're living as a Christian. That you're determining every facet of your life. What you can and can't do. Um what your purpose is, your ethics, how you treat people. Do you want to be God? Or do you believe that there's a God who has truth above us, governing us, and, and always there, regardless of whether we believe or rebel or submit to it? But if we submit to it, it is a gift to us to not wander in darkness, to not be blind anymore, but to see truth and allow the truth to set us free, to live with purpose and conviction and in a way that is anchored and principled, to live in a reality that is true instead of false. I hope and pray that you would allow God to be God who generously gifts us scripture and reveals this truth to us and allows us to live in a meaningful way, in the way that we were created to live, right? If, it's, if there's no God, how should anyone else tell me how to live my life? Why should one ant tell the other ant their purpose? How does a pen tell a cup why they were made? But we have a creator who made us who loves us, who's given us purpose, and who speaks over us. All those things. What an amazing gift. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's being challenged. 
There's people who say they know and love and believe in scripture, but they believe it in a relative way. It's actually under their feet, subjected to them. And they're really God. They're the God of of the Bible. And then there's those who say in their prayer of confession, in their first steps towards you, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for trying to be my own God, for living my truth. I want you to be my God, and I want to live your truth. Would that be our prayer in the first steps of coming to you and becoming Christian? And that would that be our prayer today? In Jesus' name, amen.